Good morning, church. It is so sweet to be a part of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is using everyday, undeserving people like you and me to advance the Great Commission. The, uh, the little ones, the youth can leave at this time and be equipped and trained and discipled in the Word. And as they go, pray for them. Pray that the Word of God would be proclaimed and take root in their souls and lead to conversion, life transformation. Uh, one thing about the family meeting uh, we're going to do differently. Uh, it was alluded to in the prayer. Uh, there will be food. Uh, so we ordered a, uh, I had Luke order a bunch of pizza. So I figure if we're going to meet together and stay afterwards, might as well just eat together and do that too. So, um, so uh, be, be ready for that. That'll be, that'll be a good time. Uh, I just got back from uh, LA, as you know. I was there doing some uh, PhD work and there for an intensive time of, of classes. And so basically you get, you know, you go to class at 8 a.m. and you go home at 10 p.m. And, and that was my, those were my days as I was off studying and so grueling and hard and, and yet it's sweet to drink deep from the riches of God's word in that way. Well, let me, let me do this. Um, this is a little different than usual, but I need to pray one more time. I, I feel weighty about what we're talking about this morning. The stakes are high, and so I want to go to the Lord one more time and, and ask for his help. Oh, King Jesus, this is your universe. This is your solar system. This is your galaxy. This is your planet. This is your country, your state, your city. We are your slaves. This is your word, and this is all about your glory. Lord, we know we're not playing games here this morning. We know that this is a weighty and massive endeavor that we are about to do, Lord. It is, this is not just a, uh, a funny-looking guy giving a speech before an audience, Lord. What this is, is the proclamation of your word. This is the means, one of the means you have given for the upbuilding of your church, for the advancement of the Great Commission, which means, Lord, this is supernatural, which means this is out of our hands. So I'm asking, O oh Lord, that you would intervene, O oh Messiah, that you would intervene in this moment and use your word to impact and shape your people and this church always and only for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you stop to think about what the New Testament says a church must have and do, it's very surprising what's not on the list. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is when you strip a church down, as it were, to its bare beams, and studs and the, and the bare foundation and you remove all of the American cultural entailments and, and preferences that aren't actually commanded by the Bible, what you're left with is a list very different from what you'd expect. In other words, what, what I mean is what the New Testament demands is essential for a church and what we think is essential for a church aren't always exactly the same thing. For instance, number one, a ministry to the homeless. Believe it or not, not on the list. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. 
And I'm not saying it's not a good idea, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't get the, the gospel to them and do what we can to, to minister to them, I'm, and, and we could do it if we wanna, but I'm just saying there is nothing in the Bible that says we absolutely gotta. Number two, and this is, this is gonna sound really controversial, but a youth ministry, not on the list not required by the New Testament. Now, no one is saying that that's a bad thing or that we shouldn't do it. I'm all for discipling and shepherding the youth to love and prize Christ as the treasure of their souls. I'm just saying that youth ministry, as it exists in our 21st century form, not on the list. Number three, a recovery ministry to addicts, not on the list. Now they need the gospel, they need shepherding too. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be a part of that, but I'm just, I'm just saying that ministry to addicts as a program, not demanded by the New Testament. Number four, mops, a ministry to mothers of preschoolers. I, I, I saw this explode and, and it was huge in Spokane and I saw this used as, a, as an instrument for the Great Commission and so this can totally be used as a great tool but again, it's not on the list. Number five, and this is gonna sound totally crazy, children's ministry, not on the list. Now what I don't mean, don't mishear me, the Bible is really, really, really clear. We are to be radically devoted and passionate about the evangelization and the discipling of children to love and prize Christ. I'm just saying that all the typical bells and whistles that we typically associate with children's ministry not on the list. Paul did not tell Timothy to do a VBS or use flannel graphs, okay? Not on the list. And on and on the list goes. Awana, men's ministry, women's ministry, singles ministry, a church secretary, church softball, bikers for Jesus, peck even a building. Not on the list. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I am not against any one of those things. I want every single one of those things just as, mad, just as bad, if not more, than you do. And, and each one of these things can be so useful and helpful to a local church body. And if we can do them, and if we can do them right, well then by all means, let's do them. But more often than not, what is designed to be just a useful tool for ministry becomes what we think defines a healthy church. And, and here's, here's the rub that makes this really, really interesting. Our definition of a healthy church and the Bible's definition of a healthy church may not exactly be the same thing. And speaking of a healthy church that advances the Great Commission for the glory of Christ, that's exactly why I'm doing this small two-week series called The Church Unassailable which is all about what the church is to be and to do. Because as you know, next week we start our series on Titus, which is all about what the church is to be and to do. And yet before we start that series on Titus, which is about the church, we have to get to the bottom of why this thing called the church and not something else exists. 
In other words, what I mean is God could have designed anything he darn well wanted to advance his plan, but what he designed was the church, and we have got to find out why, what it is, why it exists, and how you can be a part of it. And as I said last week, all I'm after in this little two-week series is that I want to recalibrate your thinking and I want to recapture your passion. I want to recalibrate your thinking about the church. I want to recapture your passion for the church. And what I am praying every single day for this church, and I want you to join me in this, is that Christ would give us the grace to implement the kinds of priorities from his word that would would give us, uh, lay a foundation for this church to be an unassailable church. An invincible church that has the kind of foundation to make a global impact for the glory of Christ even hundreds of years after all of us are dead unless the Lord should come. And if you want that for our church, and I know you do, then we need to see the kinds of priorities that drive the church. So here's where we're we're going. You may or may not have notes, but here's the roadmap of where we're headed. This morning, I want you to see seven priorities. Seven non-negotiable priorities, that is. Seven non-negotiable priorities to which we must be committed as a church if we want this church to make an impact for eternity. That's where we're going. Seven non-negotiable priorities to which we must be committed as a church if we want this church to make an impact for eternity. And that is exactly what we want. We did four of these last week. We're doing the last three today. Originally, it was eight points. I took one off. You're welcome. So let's, let's review here. You remember last week that the first order of business was that we had to define the church, right? Because if we're going to be a church, and if we're going to embark on the mission of a church, then we have to define what even the church is. We, we desperately need to define our terms. And, and we saw last week that the church is not primarily a place or a building or a location, or a geographical designation with an address. No, you know the church is people. The church is people. The church is souls singled out and selected by the Father for salvation before time, for salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the church. And you remember that the the Greek word for church is just loaded with significance. Do you remember? The Greek word is ekklesia, ekklesia, ek meaning from or out of, klesia meaning called out. We are the called out ones, called out and chosen. We are a curious and conspicuous community of believers distinct and different from the world who still live in the world, who have a global mission to the world. That's the church. As the church, we exist for the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ and for the glory of his invincible sovereign empire. And speaking of Christ and his global empire, priority number one is that you must revere the builder of the church. You must revere the builder of the church because that's the thing that makes the church so utterly unique from every organization on the planet, namely that the church is the only organization that King Jesus ever promised to build. 
because you understand, right, that the church is not some homegrown, ma and pa organization started out of the back of someone's van in a parking lot. Right? You understand that the church is not some sort of accidental thing that the apostles just sort of like, oh, well, this thing is happening. Well, let's just go with it since it's got momentum. No, no. The church is the creation and the invention of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember what he said, right? Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. This is mine. I own it. I build it. I bought it. This is mine. This belongs to me. My house, my rules. I call the shots here. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see that? The, the, the sovereign king of the universe is the builder of the church. And the application of that point is really, really simple. The value and importance that we place upon the church should be, uh, the, the value, put it this way, the value and importance that we place upon Christ should be directly proportional to the value that we place upon the church. In other words, if we are gonna love the one who builds the church, we must love the church that he builds. Then we saw last week, number two, you must remember the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. You must remember the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. And we saw that the strategic place of the church in the plan of God is nothing less than the current stage upon which the glory of Christ is put on display. Now, the church is by no means the only instrument that God uses to advance his plan, but the church is the primary instrument that God uses to advance his plan. The church is the central instrument through which the blessings of salvation reach to the ends of the earth, which tells us, which tells us the church is not a matter of optional preference, but of cosmic significance. And then last week, number three, we saw that you must realize the mission of the church. You must realize the mission of the church, which is the most loving and dangerous mission that exists called the Great Commission. Because last week we said that, that many Christians in America have, the, have this mistaken idea that churches and even Christianity exists primarily for the improvement of their personal quality of life. That's their conception of Christianity. This, this, this is about me becoming a better me and turning over a new leaf and, and breaking some bad habits and, and improving my moral quality of life. That, that's what this is about. And to be sure, the church does exist to rehabilitate sinners. The church is a recovery room for ransom sinners and recovering idolaters, but that recovery is not an end in itself. No, rather the mission of the church is to repair wounded sinners to go back out there and fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, as you know, it's making disciples, isn't it? It's making disciples. And you see that mission, that does not just belong to cross-cultural missionaries. No, it belongs to you. In this room, it belongs to you. Those who go and those who stay have the exact same mission, which is to make disciples. That's your, that's the mission to which all of you are called. 
And yet the reality with which you must come to grips is making disciples is not just evangelism, but get this, it is the intentional, faithful, persistent investment of the word of God into their lives after you evangelize them. In other words, it's the entire process from conversion to maturation, from baby to maturity, where you are intentionally investing the word of God into the life of another person, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus Christ commanded you. And yet, and yet, the goal is not merely to make disciples, but get this, to be disciple makers who make disciple makers, who plant churches that make disciple makers, that make disciple makers, and on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and the mission is over. Do you feel the weight and the stakes of what we're about? And that is exactly where we're going as a church, that, that kind of mission. And then finally, last week, we saw number four, that you must rest upon the foundation of the church. You must rest upon the foundation of the church, which is nothing less than the doctrines contained in the pages of Holy Scripture. Because again, counterintuitive though it may be, doctrine is not a liability which, which threatens the unity of the church. Doctrine is the foundation upon which all true unity is produced. And by foundation, I mean the nuclear core reactor that empowers the church to be an instrument that breaks open the world. I mean that the word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man and that the essence of a healthy church is when those in it intentionally invest the word of God into the lives of other people. So all that was last week, which brings us now to non-negotiable reality, non-negotiable priority number five. You ready? You must recall the role of leaders in the local church. You must recall the role of leaders in the local church. Now I say to recall the role of leaders in the local church because so much, get this now, so much of what leaders are called to be and do in the church has been tragically forgotten. See, the ancient vision of shepherds, pastors, elders who lead their people with the sword of the spirit into battle. The ancient vision of, a, of pastors and equippers and elders who equip their people for great commission significance has been tragically replaced by the CEO, therapist, motivational speaker who exists solely to boost people's self-esteem. I'm not saying you, but most people in the American church that their default image of elders is not shepherds, but policymakers, financial officers, fundraisers, administrators, business managers, and to be sure, to be sure, there is a level at, at times in seasons of a local church when elders have to do those kinds of things. Elders are not above doing those kinds of things. I'm just saying that is not the vision of what elders are called to be and do. 
For instance, did you know that the terms elder, pastor, and shepherd are all synonymous and interchangeable in the New Testament? Did you know that? I mean, think about that for a second. Elders and pastors in the New Testament are the exact same thing. They, they do the same thing. They have the exact same qualifications. Now, it's true, it's true. The New Testament does speak about supporting some financially so that they can be freed up full-time to minister the word of God and shepherd the flock, which is what you're doing for me. And, and I pause now in a, in a parenthesis to, to say thank you for that. You are an incredibly generous people freeing me up to do this and, 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 I, and I am giving my life to serve you and I'm thankful for that, for you. And so there is a such thing as leader among equals. That is true. But at the end of the day, the titles of pastor, elder, and shepherd are equal, synonymous, and interchangeable. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. And they are all equally appointed by Jesus Christ to shepherd the flock of God. Look at the evidence. In your notes, 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, there's the first term, it is a fine work he desires to do. So leaders in the local church are called overseers, meaning they have pastoral oversight and leadership in the church. But then you get to Titus 1.5. Also in your notes. And, and what does Paul tell Titus to do? He, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every church. Not overseers, appoint elders in every church. And yet, two verses later, what does he call the elders? Overseers. <laughs> overseers. Exact same term in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, which means elders and overseers are absolutely synonymous. But then Paul in Ephesians 4.11 uses yet another term to describe leaders in the church and he calls them pastors, which literally means shepherds. So do the math. You have overseers, elders, shepherds. They're the exact same thing. And then all of a sudden we get to 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 and all the moving parts are drawn together. It's also in on your notes. Look very carefully at what Peter says. I exhort the elders among you to do what, Peter? Shepherd the flock of God among you. Well, what does that look like? Exercising oversight, he says. Do you hear the connections? Peter is talking to elders. And what did he tell the elders to do? Shepherd the flock of God. Well, what does it look like? Well, and here's the thing about that word shepherd the flock of God. The word shepherd is the exact same term in Ephesians 4.11. It means to pastor. Elders are to pastor the flock. The work of elders is pastoral ministry. But how do they do that? What does it look like? Look at the text. Peter goes on to say that how elders are to pastor is by exercising oversight. Guess what? That is, the ex that is the verb form of the noun overseer that Paul used in 1 Timothy 3.1, which means elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, synonymous, interchangeable. They're the exact same thing. 
think about it like this. You've heard of a sous chef, right? You know, you know what a sous chef is? That word sous in French means under. He is the under chef, under the authority of the head chef. He prepares the food. He supervises the staff. His, his job under the authority of the head chef is to make sure that the people are fed and the, the kitchen is safe and the workers are trained. He cooks, he cleans, he manages, he leads, he oversees the kitchen. You see, pastors, shepherds are the sous shepherds under the authority of the chief shepherd. And their job, our job as elders, as shepherds at Christ's community is to feed the flock with the feast of truth. You see, our, our job here at Christ's community is to make this church a veritable banquet hall of savory theological meals that moves you to then go out and find starving, malnourished people and bring them into the kitchen of the king called the church. Because did not Christ tell Peter, Peter, tend my lambs. Feed my flock. Shepherd my sheep. Did not Paul say in 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention, elders, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Did not Paul tell the elders in Acts 20 to give his people, to give their people the whole counsel of God? Did not Paul say in 2 Timothy 4 2, preach the word, pastors, elders, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction? Did not Paul say in Ephesians 4.11 that pastors, elders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry? Is that what pastors, elders are to do? That is exactly what they are to do. Shepherd my sheep, Peter and all subsequent elders throughout all history feed my flock. And you can hear the implications of this, can't you? The implications of what, what it means to have shepherds who do that. It means that our job as pastors, elders at Christ Community is to come alongside you and humbly and compassionately and urgently come alongside you with the word of God, not only, to, not only to disciple you and encourage you to deal with life's messes in a way that glorifies Christ, but our job also is to equip you to fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. Our job is to come alongside you and help you in whatever way we can to, to help you live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. And I just want you to know right now that we are here. We, we, I am planting that flag in the ground. I'm letting you know that is what we're gonna do for you. We are committed to doing whatever it takes to help you live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. You have a chief shepherd, Christ community, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he is perfect and glorious and sovereign and satisfying and sufficient, and you have five sous shepherds. And we are not ministers or bishops or reverends or clergy, or priests, or a council, or a Sanhedrin, or a committee, or an executive board, or especially not the Sanhedrin. No, 
we are shepherds. We are shepherds. We are pastors. And we are charged by God for the shepherding of your souls. Which brings us to non-negotiable priority number six. Non-negotiable priority number six, you must be recklessly abandoned to ministry in the church. You must be recklessly abandoned to ministry in the church because as you know, everybody in the church, as they should, they love to talk about love, don't they? Everyone loves to talk about love. Loving is right and, and biblical and indispensable for the Great Commission. Without love, there is no mission. Agreed? But I wonder, if you forced most people to define what love looks like in the local church, if you force most people to, to really explain, okay, what, do, what does a authentic, supernaturally loving church actually look like? I, I, wonder, how, I wonder how practical they could be. I wonder how concrete they could be. I wonder how specific they can actually be. What does an actual, supernaturally loving church actually, really, truly look like? Month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, conversation by conversation. And to answer that, maybe we have to go all the way back to square one and actually define what love is. Because do, do you know what it means to love one another? Do you know what love is? Love is you doing whatever it takes even at great cost to yourself to do what's best for other people. The question becomes, all right, what's best for other people? If that's true, that we're supposed to do what's best for other people, what's best for other people? Answer, Christ himself is what's best for other people. Because isn't the essence of love to, to give people that which is supremely valuable and lasting and satisfying? Isn't that love? And is there anything in the universe more supremely valuable or lasting or satisfying than Jesus Christ himself? Can you think of anything more lasting and, and satisfying and worthy than him? So point made. The most loving thing you could do is give people what is best and what's best is Christ. So what that means is, listen very carefully, here's the punchline. What that means is that authentic, biblical love means that you do whatever it takes, even at great cost to yourself, to help people see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's love. And if that's true, if that's true that that's what love is, and it is, that has some very powerful ramifications for the life of a church, doesn't it? Because what that means is authentic love, here it is, what that means is authentic love means that you intentionally, faithfully, persistently invest the word of God into one another's lives. When boots on the ground, that's what love looks like in a local church. Or to put it another way, you know that a church really knows how to love people when the people in it are constantly pointing to one another, to Jesus Christ as the treasure of their souls. 
You know what that's called? That's called discipleship. That's called church. That's called ministry. That's called love. You have to understand the church is to be a battalion of well-trained souls who repair one another with the word of God to fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. And you understand, people almost always think of church in terms of programs run by a few, right? I was in college ministry for eight years. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But it's a tool. And if you do it right, then right on, let's do it. But most people's conception of churches is programs run by a few. Youth ministry, college ministry, children's ministry, singles ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, any other kind of ministry. Just, just hire a pastor, have him run it, and give the people what they want. But you see, those things are great, and if we can do them right, then let's do them. But what church really is, is the intentional, word-centered ministry, not done by a few, but done by everybody. That's good church right there. That's great church. Don't believe me? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It's in your notes. Look what Paul says that Christ did. Paul says that Christ gave pastors to the church. Believe it or not, pastors are a gift to you. Maybe not the gift you wanted, but nevertheless, that's what Christ has given to the church. And what reason did Paul say that Christ gave pastors to the church? What did he say? Verse 11 and 12. Christ gave pastors to the church, here it is, for the equipping of the saints. To do what? To do the work of ministry. Do you see? Christ gave pastors to the church to equip the saints so that the saints do the work of ministry. That's very interesting. Pastors train the saints for ministry. Saints do the work of ministry. This is really profound. This is everybody on board, everybody engaged. Right? See, to be a Christian does not mean that you are spectators of ministry, but that you are participators in ministry. But why? For what purpose? What, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of you doing the work of ministry? What does that accomplish? Look at the end of verse 12. Christ gave some as pastors or elders for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. Here it is. Wait for it. For the edification of the body of Christ. Do you see that in the text? The word for means purpose. You see, this, this, is, this is a shocking thing. What did, who did Paul just say is responsible for the upbuilding and edification of the local church? Who did he say? You. You are responsible for the upbuilding and edification of your church. This is a shocking thing. The saints of a local church are responsible for the edification of their own local church. That's not primi primarily my job. My job is to equip you how to do that, and then your job is to do that. I mean, this is incredible. You're, every saint owns the joyful burden of helping this church be as godly as absolutely possible. Central 
to your identity as a Christ follower is not just to have a healthier, happier life where you turn over a new leaf and you break a few bad habits. No, your identity as a Christian is to be an instrument of edification. That's incredible. But how do you do that? How do you be an instrument of edification? How, how do you help your church be as godly as absolutely possible? And that's a big burden. How, how do I carry that load? Well, it's way simpler than you'd think. Skip down to verse 15. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in all things who is the head namely Christ. And there it is. Did you see it? Did you see how you become an instrument of edification and help this church be as godly as absolutely possible? What did Paul just say? How you become an instrument of edification is by speaking the truth to one another in love. And what did he say is the result of speaking the truth to one another in love? He says, we grow up in him in all things. Who is the head, namely Christ? You see, growth, growth, authentic, supernatural life change and transformation happens only and only when, one, we personally meditate on the sacred text of scripture on our own, and two, when you faithfully invest the word of God into the lives of one another, period. And the funny thing about that phrase, speaking the truth, three words in English, one word in Greek. It's just one word in Greek, it's really interesting. And it's a participle, you know what a participle is? It's one of those I-N-G words. Eating, walking, dancing, drinking, I don't know why I use dancing and drinking. I guess I should have put smoking in there too, but, but you, you get the point, right? It's an I-N-G word. And you get the point. Literally, the word is what Paul is saying. Literally, he's saying, truthing in love. That's what he's saying. Truthing in love. Truthing one another in love is how you be an instrument of edification, truthing one another in love, and it's present tense, which means always continually ongoing, never stop doing that. Truthing one another in love is how you help this church be as godly, as absolutely possible. If you want this church to be everything you imagine it could be, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. If you want the real thing, not, not just transfer growth, you know, where people come from other churches and, and they fill up the seats, and that's great, and no one doesn't want that, everyone wants that. But don't we deep down know, yeah, we want that too, but we want the other real thing, total 
pagans who have never heard the name of Christ sitting in these seats, loved on by you, ministered by you, getting converted by the sovereign grace of Christ, becoming a part of this body, and then people, you, coming around them, investing in them and discipling them, and then eventually years later, they start mentoring and discipling other people, and they train them to be disciple makers who go on and train others to be disciple makers, and on and on it goes. That is real, that is supernatural, that is authentic, that is the long game. It's not flashy, it's not pretty, that's not really anything you can kind of program. But my, oh my, if we did that as a church, what a church we would be. The question is, who are you truthing at this very moment? Who are you truthing? Husbands and wives, are you truthing one another in love? Parents, are you truthing your children? Grandparents, are you truthing not only your adult children, but even your, even your, your grandchildren? Senior saints, I love the senior saints of this church. And I believe you can have a profound ministry in this church by truthing not just one another, but even just inserting yourselves into the lives of others and truthing them also. Singles, I love singles. And I think you can have an absolutely profound ministry for the Great Commission, not just by truthing one another, but by inserting yourselves graciously in appropriate ways and even people into the lives of other people older than you and truthing them also. That's your responsibility. I mean, are you getting a vision of where this church is going? This, this intentional, faithful, word-centered, loving investment of the word of God into one another's lives. That's exactly where we're going. The question is, did you know that your individual pursuit of holiness and sanctification is a community service project? Did you know that? Did you know that authentic church health is not measured by its programs alone, but by the commitment of each member to make the spiritual growth of one another their priority. Did you know that? Did you know that ministry in the local church means that your holiness is my business and my holiness is your business? Did you know that? See, what you have to understand is that a truly healthy church is made up of 10,000 intentional moments a week where you are intentionally investing the word of God into the lives of other people. That's where we're going, and I want you to come with me. Which brings us finally to priority number seven. To non-negotiable priority number seven, it's this. You must relish the gathering of the church. You must relish the gathering of the church. And by relish, I don't mean the goopy green stuff that you put on hot dogs. I mean enjoy. I mean savor. I mean delight. I mean feast on the gathering of saints together on a Sunday morning because people gather for all sorts of reasons, don't they? 
All sorts of reasons, some common cause that unites them together and gives them a reason to meet together. Company picnics, sporting events, PTA, high school reunions. I just had my 20th, what happened to me? Weddings and funerals and awards banquets and birthday parties, right? We, we meet, we convene, we assemble together in the name of all of those things. And it makes perfect sense to meet together. Oh yeah, well totally, totally I'd go to my high school reunion. Totally we'd get together for that. We meet in the name of all those things and we, we don't even bat an eye. We meet, we meet, because 2,000 years ago, a man rose from the dead. Think about that. We meet to worship a crucified Jew who proved that he was God by raising from the dead, rather by raising himself from the dead, which means the Sunday gathering isn't just another meeting out of a week full of other meetings. No, this is the most sacred and significant meeting on the face of the planet. Tell me I'm wrong. This means everything. We convene here on a Sunday morning in resurrection hope of a risen Savior for whom we are waiting, not only to rapture us, but to establish his kingdom. And if you think about it, not only does the New Testament command that we meet together, but it only makes sense that we would meet together, right? The logical expression of a redeemed people is to worship together the very one who redeemed them. And yet that's the question, isn't it? What is worship exactly? I mean, we call this a worship service, don't we? And, and yet we have to ask the question, well, if that's true, if everything we're supposed to do on a Sunday morning is worship, and it is, well, then what is worship exactly? I'll tell you what it is. Worship, which is the most significant occupation in the universe, by the way. Worship is knowing and treasuring and showing the infinite worth and value of God. That's worship. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. Worship, in its essence, is knowing and savoring and treasuring and reflecting and showing and displaying the infinite worth and value of the living God. Music and singing, that is not worship by itself. It is an expression of worship, one of many different kinds of expressions of worship, but worship in its essence is knowing and treasuring and showing the infinite worth and value of the living God. That is our business on a Sunday morning. That is what we're doing here. And yet the question remains, if we're gonna gather here to worship the triune God, well then what kinds of things should we do here on a Sunday morning? I mean, have we ever thought about that? Like, well, like what does the New Testament actually require us to do on a Sunday morning because there's lots and lots of optional things that, that, that we do and it's interesting to me what the New Testament commands and doesn't command that we do on a Sunday morning. And that's, that's the genius of the New Testament, right? The, the genius of the New Testament is that it, it gives us incredible flexibility to pattern our Sunday morning gatherings in culturally, ex, culturally appropriate expressions, right? 
And yet there are some non-negotiables, aren't there? In fact, there are six non-negotiable expressions, forms of worship on a Sunday morning. This will go really fast. Six forms of worship that we should and must do on a Sunday morning. For instance, number one, not in order necessarily, but just here they are. Number one, the Bible assumes that we will gather together. And it commands that we do so. And the Bible assumes that when we gather, one of the natural expressions of our gathering will be to worship God together in song which is just theology put to music. That's what it is. You see, music by itself, on its own, is not worship. Rather, worship is created in the soul by meditating on the truth in the the lyrics, and music is but the escalator that makes the worship rise to the king. And good voice, bad voice, you have your own CD, or you make dogs howl, it doesn't matter. You are to sing to the Lord. You are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We do what Psalm 95 tells us to do, which is, come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Why? For Yahweh is a great God. Umelech gadol al kol alokim. A great king above all gods. Number two. Not only do we sing to the king, but we hear from the king. That is through the text of Holy Scripture. That's why Paul commands in 1 Timothy 4.13, Give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to, and to exhortation and to teaching. That's why Paul commands in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Be diligent, pastors, elders, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Here it is, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. That's why he said in 2 Timothy 4.2, I solemnly charge you, Jared Gilcher, and all elders and pastors, before God and before Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. Don't you see, Sunday mornings are to be a banquet hall where we feast on the rich cuisine of Holy Scripture. This is to be a buffet of theological delights and doctrinal desserts and heavenly appetizers. And so because of that, listen very carefully to me, I want you to come hungry for God on a Sunday morning. I want you to be a people who go hard after God on a Sunday morning. Because the whole come here to give and not to get thing, you ever hear that? That's an unbiblical distinction. It's an unbiblical distinction. It's not either or, it's both and. It's both and. I mean, yes, to be sure, when you show up, you need to give and you need to pour out your life for one another. But not only that, not only that, I want you to walk through those doors hungry and thirsty and needy and desperate to hear from the living God. Number three, we not only sing to the king, 
We not only hear the word of the king, but we pray our guts out to the king. We see this model in the first church on the face of the planet, first century Jerusalem. Acts 2.42, it says literally that they were devoting themselves continually to prayers, plural. It's commanded by the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. I exhort you, therefore, to be making petitions and prayers and entreaties and thanksgivings for all men, for kings and all those who are in authority. Don't you see? We pray, Christ community, not just because that's what Christians do, but because prayer is the blood and guts act of calling the headquarters of heaven for everything that we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Number four. In a Sunday morning gathering, we are called to remember and to celebrate the most pivotal transaction in history, namely the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. It's called communion, right? And it's worship. And we take the bread and we take the cup. Why? Because they are palpable, tangible reminders, pictures of the only way that a ruined sinner can ever hope to have salvation, namely the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in their place. Number five, 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Timothy 5 makes it, make it absolutely clear that one of the tangible expressions of our worship is the glad and generous giving of our finances, which aren't ours at all. They are God's finances, aren't they? Psalm 25, the earth is Yahweh's and everything it contains, we are but stewards. And never forget that when you, when you give to ministry, that's, that's, not a, that's not a charitable donation. That is holy participation in what God is doing in human history. Finally, number six, we're almost done. When we gather together, one of our expressions of worship is the one another's of Holy Scripture. Did you know that? Did you know that the one another's in Scripture, that that's actually what the Bible means by fellowship? I mean, sometimes our conceptions of, of fellowship is just pretty thin and, and doesn't have a lot of substance to it. Well, what the Bible means by koinonia, by fellowship, is the one another's that we do to and for one another. And you remember the one another's, don't you? There are 59 of them, and I'm going to read every single one of them. I'm just kidding, just a sample. <laughs> you believed me for a second. Encourage one another, pray for one another comfort one another, teach one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, love one another, instruct one another, serve one another, confess your sins to one another, be devoted to one another, and brotherly love, bear one another's burdens. That is ministry, that is church, that is love, that is worship. And all of those things are to happen here. Not just here, but here. All I want for you on a Sunday morning is that when you walk out those doors back to the parking lot, that you know that you have just encountered the living God. All I want for you when you walk out those doors is that you are gripped by a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. 
When you walk out those doors and you're headed back to your car, I want you to leave with the sense that you are on a mission more weighty and urgent than World War III, which is exactly what you are. And as you know, Luke has been up here every single Sunday leading you in song. And I thought it'd only be appropriate that you hear from him his heart for you. I asked him, I said, Luke, what do you want most for Christ's community on a Sunday morning? Listen to what he said. My deepest desire for our congregation is that we would walk away each Sunday with a deeper understanding and appreciation of the scriptures. Listen to this. Truth leads to action and grace. That's profound. That's unbelievable. Truth leads to action and grace. It gives us direction as a church and individually, and it gives us an intimate relationship with Christ, all of which culminates in effectiveness for the Great Commission. Dead on. Dead on. I'm grateful he's on our team. And there they are. Those are the seven non-negotiable priorities to which we must be committed as a church if we want this church to make an impact for eternity, and we most certainly want that. And if we did these kinds of things, if we did the kinds of things that we just talked about in the way that God commands them to be done, we might not be very impressive in the eyes of the world, but we would be a lethal instrument used by God to reach the world, which is the only thing that really matters anyway. Christ community, I want you to love the church. And infinitely more important than that, Christ wants you to love his church. We're going to do communion now at the Lord's table. I'm going to pray. They will assemble the elements. Rich will lead us. But let's go to the Lord and prepare our hearts. Oh Lord, the church is not a joke. This is not a club. This is not a hobby. This is not a team, a sports team. The church is people, Lord. Those predestined, singled out, selected, purchased, paid for, sealed with the Spirit, this is sacred, this is important, not because we're important in and of ourselves, but, but because we belong to you, O oh Christ. And I pray that you would help this church be a healthy church, a growing church, a church that does the work of ministry, a church that owns the burden to invest in the lives of one another with your word. We're thankful for this time. And as we transition now to communion, Lord, I pray that you, this would be a great feast for our souls as we break the bread of life and think about Christ, which you have accomplished in our place. In your matchless name we pray. Amen.